This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the UC San Diego Center for Healthy Aging's monthly public lecture event. Um, so I'm just delighted to introduce our speaker tonight. Many of you know him. He's a real local rock star here at UCSD, uh, Dr. Todd Coleman. Uh, his talk tonight is The Future of Healthcare, Medical Tattoos and Wearable Technology. Uh, Dr. Coleman is Associate Professor in the Department of Bioengineering here at UC San Diego. He's also the director of the Neural Interaction Laboratory here in the Bioengineering Department and co-director of the Center for Perinatal Health within the Campus-Wide Institute of Engineering and Medicine and the engineering representative for the Campus-Wide Global Health Initiative. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Todd Coleman. Uh, Thank you for the kind introduction. And so... um, I thought I would uh, start my talk by uh, uh, introducing uh, myself uh, from the perspective of where I got to where I am now. And the starting point of that begins when I was a graduate student uh, at MIT, and at the time, I was working on nothing related to medicine or health, uh, and unapologetically so. And so I was uh, studying electrical engineering uh, with an emphasis in applied math and data analysis. And as I was uh, close to graduating, my advisor, Professor Miro Medar, gave me some of the best advice in my career. And what she strongly suggested was uh, before I start my faculty position at the University of Illinois, which is where I was going, she said that I should take a detour. She strongly encouraged me to call up the department chair at the University of Illinois in the electrical engineering department and tell him I want to delay my start date. And then I should go and do a postdoctoral study it means more studies even after your PhD, go and do that in something wildly different, very different than what I had been doing. And so I followed her advice. She never steered me wrong. And I ended up doing a postdoctoral study in something very different indeed, neuroscience. And so I was working uh, with a gentleman named Emery Brown, who is a uh, physician and a scientist. He practices anesthesia at Mass General Hospital in Boston. And he also is a neuroscience professor at MIT. So this was my first foray into understanding biology and the connection to health and medicine, and indeed was uh, a great detour that I took. And so as I uh, started my career at the University of Illinois, I began to work at this intersection between these two areas, developing the appropriate data science ways to analyze medical data, neural data, come to better conclusions. And what I started to realize is the way that we actually gather that data, especially in humans, Uh, is very cumbersome. And so I became interested in actually developing and innovating with technology as well. Can we miniaturize technology so that we can actually record useful information and come to useful interpretations uh, more easily? And so uh, just to motivate this as an example, some of us may be familiar with obstructive uh, sleep apnea, and some of you may be familiar with those masks that people have to wear. Maybe some of you in the audience uh, wear them. And so uh, the bottom line is that it's uh, more common among um, older adults and among people who are significantly overweight. Uh, It can significantly increase, you know, your risk of high blood pressure, strokes, heart disease, and cognitive problems 
and most recently, uh, some people believe that it actually has a connection to cancer as well. So um, if we stand back and we take a look at sleep apnea, I don't know if any of you have had to have them do a test to see if you may have sleep apnea. And if you do, uh, this is typically what you have to do. You have to do a sleep study, and you have to go to a facility where they instrument you like crazy with all of these different uh, uh, technologies. And so when I take a look at this picture, I remember uh, what they told us in physics. There's an old adage that in the process of measuring a system, you undoubtedly perturb it. And so if we think about we're trying to measure what your sleep is like, but does this look like uh, a normal night of getting sleep? <laughs> uh, no. So they're measuring your EEG. They're measuring your airflow. They're measuring your eye movements. Uh, all of these different details. And so... At a high level, stories like this are really what motivated me to, uh, to be interested in developing um, less obtrusive technology that is still actionable and we can still use to interpret and to allow people to, uh, to make the appropriate decisions. And so, um, in short, this is what led us to, over a long period of time, partnering with people who study uh, materials, people who understand uh, the, the ways that we fabricate semiconductor chips and repurpose them, and over time, we were able to demonstrate a system that looks like this around, around five years ago in 2011. And so this system um, is basically a flexible electronics patch. Uh, it's very thin. It has electrical sensors in it. You can put electronic circuits inside of this. And then the most important thing is that it can bend and stretch naturally with your skin. And so if you guys noticed, the title of the talk had medical tattoos in it. Uh, I had to show you a picture of a temporary tattoo. <laughs> And so here's a picture of a temporary tattoo. And what this shows is that there are many ways that we can uh, build these sorts of devices and then integrate them onto the human body. And one way is by embedding them inside of a temporary tattoo. So then you just mount it right onto your body. My apologies to the regents of the University of California. We demonstrated this when I was still at the University of Illinois. So that's the <laughs> Illinois logo on the pirate. So if we uh, fast forward a little bit, uh, as, uh, as I transitioned from the University of Illinois here to UC San Diego, one of the things that I was very excited about doing is being able to understand how we can apply this in clinical context, and we're very fortunate that we actually have a medical school here at UC San Diego. And so um, the types of things that you can pick up with these devices, uh, you can mount these things onto the chest, and you can measure uh, good aspects of your ECG. Uh, you can measure information about uh, uh, temperature. So let's think about someone to determine if they're prone to or at risk to having an infection. And also remember, uh, I'm a you know applied mathematician turned neuroscientist. So obviously, I'd like to measure the electrical rhythms of the brain, namely uh, EEG. And so we demonstrated that indeed we can pick up some of the basic aspects of EEG, in particular when your eyes open versus when your eyes close you see more uh, energy in a certain frequency band. So with that, one of the biggest challenges that we had is uh, we started to partner with lots of clinicians here at UC San Diego, and uh, the, the problem began to be scale. And what that means is not only could we build these devices, but how are we building these devices, and can we build them so that we can massively uh, provide them to lots of different uh, clinician friends of ours to really determine how they can be useful. And so this picture up top, uh, I don't expect you to read the details, but what it really showcases is the previous way that we were building these devices that were, you know, could be embedded inside of medical adhesives and mounted onto the body. is very cumbersome and very error-prone. 
You have to use the same procedures that they use to make semiconductor chips, but then you have to dip them in different types of chemicals. And one of our graduate students in the audience, Gladys, knows this very well because she was around from the old way that we used to make these devices. And one of our smart, uh, brilliant graduate students was basically able to replace this process that was very error-prone and had lots of intermediate steps with a much simpler process. And that's the only thing I want you to take away from this picture. The bottom picture is simpler than the top picture. There are fewer steps, and some of the steps that we removed are the ones that make the process the most error-prone and unreliable. So what that means is that in a shorter period of time, we can now make more of these devices, and when we make them, they function the way they should function more of the time. And so um, with that, uh, we, we began to dive more into this, uh, this sort of framework, and here's an example of what's nice about the new approach that we took. The new approach that we took is compatible with what's called roll-to-roll processing. So if we think about the Industrial Revolution, one of the great examples of the Industrial Revolution is the printing press. Well, well, nowadays what people are very interested in are manufacturing approaches that can go roll-to-roll. -roll. And so what I sort of mean by that is that with our new approach of how we fabricate these devices, we can embed them inside of any type of adhesive. So what I'm about to do is show you, this is just a lint roller, and we just uh, apply the lint roller to that little wafer that has the circuits on it, and now the sensor is embedded inside of the lint roller. So just a very small amount of adhesive, we can now mount this inside the adhesive and subsequently apply it onto the human body. So as I alluded to, this, uh, th this demonstration suggests, and we're you know, working very uh, closely towards this, and really having large-scale manufacturing so that this could be done very cheaply, and this could benefit people not only here in the developed world, but also folks uh, in the developing world. And to draw one more picture to make that more clear, notice that the first time I showed you the lint roller, it was resting upon something that's flat and something that if you bend it, it'll break. But it turns out we can deposit these devices on side of that little uh, gold film, and we can do this with the standard manufacturing processes they use to make computer chips. And now what we're doing is we're just now applying the very simple medical adhesive. It's FDA approved. And we can just simply peel it right off. And now it's embedded uh, right inside of that medical adhesive, ready to be applied uh, onto, uh, onto the human skin. So th it's these sorts of things that we do as engineers where we're building the same capability as we did in 2011. But now how we do it is much more robust and more, much more able to facilitate large-scale uh, manufacturing. In addition to that, having just a sensor embedded inside of adhesive is kind of cute, but what you really want is a fully functional system. And so what we're working towards is actually now embedding very small little chips that are integrated circuits that can process the data, digitize it, encode it for wireless transmission. Here's a picture of that, and what that uh, enables, as you'll see in this video, is it enables us to partner with outside companies and these are the types of equipment that you see in this video that companies use to make standard uh, computer boards, but now we can apply this onto flexible circuits. And so uh, what that means is basically what these, now our ability to, to, to take very tiny uh, integrated circuits made by companies such as Texas Instruments or anyone else, we can connect them to these sensors that are embedded inside of adhesives. We now have something that's scalable, cost-effective, uh, it's decoupled, so how we make the sensor is different than how we design the integrated circuits, 
so everything is modularized. And these are the types of things that we hope to accomplish so we can get this in the hands of folks such as the healthy aging community. And so, uh, so far, what I've told you about you know, is you know, the sensor and the, integ and the integration uh, with the circuits. But remember, in an ideal world, we'd like to make these systems wireless so they can transmit to our smartphone or elsewhere. And so we've been spending quite a bit of, of effort on that. And I can tell you uh, about a little bit of that uh, very briefly. Uh, and the high-level idea is that we've built these antennas that are both stretchable and flexible. And these can be embedded inside of the same medical adhesives that are always uh, used in, uh, in clinical context. And in particular, in this case, this is a material called Tegaderm that's made by 3M, and it's FDA-approved. So we just buy this, and we embed our stuff inside of it. And so uh, what we started off with is uh, basically, you know, uh, wearing our electrical engineering hat and simulating how these things work. Once we simulate these, how these things work, students like uh, our grad student Gladys uh, works on actually fabricating these devices, and then we spent quite a bit of time actually mounting these things onto the skin and testing if we can transmit to your smartphone. And we've demonstrated uh, that we can transmit while it's mounted onto your skin to your smartphone up to about 150 feet away. And so uh, one of the gentlemen who led this work, Amr, uh, recently uh, graduated with his Ph.D. He's actually now a business development guy at Texas Instruments. So we go full circle. So, um, so that sort of tells you the story about uh, not only the sensor, the integration of the circuits, but also the wireless antenna. Now, as we can imagine, uh, another component of what we need to this is going to be an energy source or a battery. And although I might have communicated to you guys that I'm a jack-of-all-trades, not, not really, not exactly. So we uh, unapologetically are not interested in innovating with making batteries, but rather we're riding our surfboards along the wave of innovation of lots of companies in the private sector that are already making thin and flexible batteries, and you might have heard about this in the news. So the punchline is that there are existing solutions for thin and flexible batteries, and we're just integrating our devices with those. <clears throat> Play to your strengths. <clears throat> So um, another aspect of this that starts to come to play is we start to think about the potential applications of this. I think this is particularly relevant to the aging community is um, the idea that a lot of people have. You know, if you think about your, your, your children or your grandparents, they wear devices such as a Fitbit. The typical way they think about designing these devices is that, oh, well, um, let's just acquire the data. Let's digitize the data. Let's wirelessly transmit to your smartphone or elsewhere. And then they send it to the cloud that you hear about all the time. And in the cloud, they turn this data into information so that it's actionable, so that you can make use out of it. But there can be some challenges with that. And uh, one of the challenges is the latency. And uh, if we're talking about an acute medical condition where we need to make a decision right away, the latency in doing that um, can be life-threatening, the difference between life and death. Uh, think about someone going under cardiac arrest or someone with epilepsy having a seizure. Another aspect of that is that if these devices are just broadcasting this data all the time, it's going to drain out your battery. It's going to drain out the battery source. So these sorts of uh, you know, limitations are what motivated us uh, towards rethinking how we design these systems. Now, another aspect of this I didn't mention that's particularly relevant to the aging community, I don't have to tell you, I know some of you are thinking this, you know, if the federal government can get hacked, right, if the Fortune 500 can get hacked, then so can my doctor. So what happens if all my medical data that's in the cloud gets hacked? Can that be used against me? 
So that's yet another reason from a security and privacy perspective that this idea might not make sense for all situations. And so we got interested in thinking about, well, if we can now embed these little uh, integrated circuits, these little chips inside of our wearable devices, more and more power is being packed into a smaller and smaller area. As some of us remember the notion of Moore's Law, the gentleman from Intel, right, that every 18 months, right, they can double the amount of circuits that they can embed in the same uh, piece of silicon. So if we sort of think about that for a minute and we watch what's happening, uh, there are lots of uh, designs that are being developed where you can now start to take extremely sophisticated uh, computing systems and miniaturize them. And just as you can imagine, some of you may know that um, our iPhone right now, our iPhones or your Samsung phones, have more computing capability than the supercomputers from the 1980s. And so if we fast forward for a minute and think about what that means moving forward, what if we can take the computing power of an iPhone now and miniaturize it into something extremely small? So that's in some sense what we're doing. We're skating towards where the puck is going, and our, our, uh, our graduate students are actually developing workflows where we can do very detailed, sophisticated statistical analysis of your physiology without it ever needing to be wirelessly transmitted. And so as you can imagine, there's multiple workflows of this. Uh, our graduate student, Marcella Mendoza, who led this effort, she's actually doing a summer internship at IBM. And IBM, they have their own chip that does exactly that. And so she's spending a summer up in Silicon Valley working with IBM. And so what this means is that if we think about the example of the cardiac arrest, the example of epi epileptic seizure, now we have a faster feedback loop because we're interpreting the data and identifying if there's a problem immediately without needing to move the data to the cloud and wait for it to come back to tell us there's a problem. So imagine on your wearable patch there's a red light, a yellow light, or a green light telling you whether or not there's a problem. In addition, the most energy-consuming aspect of these wireless systems is the actual wireless transmission. So if we're not transmitting data wirelessly as much, we're saving in energy. And lastly, this really addresses our privacy concerns that we talked about as well. And so um, this is um, an interesting application that was really motivated by us talking to the community and people expressing their hesitation about all their data, especially their medical data, being in the cloud. And so this created an engineering challenge, which was also an opportunity. So um, what this, basically what this means, to summarize this, is that we can develop algorithms uh, that can interpret data that can be done in the cloud, can be done in your mobile phone, or, or can be done in some of these chips. And we've shown that we can get them to have exactly the same predictability doing the exact same mathematical analyses, ideally now uh, inside of these, um, these wearable devices. And uh, in some situations, doing it in the cloud makes more sense. In other situations, it does it locally. We're not at all proposing that nothing will ever go to the cloud, but we're just providing the flexibility to do this in different contexts. So you know, this begins to tell you a bit about um, the, you know, the technical aspects of what we developed, and I wanted to double back now and talk to you about the issue of uh, sleep. So as we, as we may know, uh, the effects of sleep deprivation are just catastrophic. So you know, increased risk of heart disease, hallucinations, uh, your immune system is messed up, you know, increased risk of obesity, uh, diabetes, et cetera. I mean, it just goes on and on. One of the things that I wanted to briefly talk to you about is the issue of immune deficiency and the issue of uh, increasing recovery times. And what I mean by that is the following. 
some of us have had to go uh, to the hospital uh, uh, to get treated. And if you end up in the ICU, uh, there can be challenges in how long it takes for you to recover in the ICU, in part because of that old physics adage that I mentioned before. They're instrumenting you like crazy. Nurses are coming around and checking you like crazy, and there's unintended consequences of that. And what I mean by that more specifically is the notion of delirium. So people literally, it's, very, uh, it's quite common that people literally go nuts while they're inside the ICU. And that's in no small part because of all the instrumentation that's upon you and how often they're watching you, checking your blood pressure, doing this, doing that, checking your temperature. And this is very, uh, uh, very challenging because, as I alluded to, your immune system uh, to recover post-surgery requires you to be sleeping well, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so um, if we talk about sleep and delirium uh, in the ICU patient, you know, 40% of hospitalized patients are 65 years or older, right? And that percentage is increasing, right? And uh, 10 to 40% of our um, elderly surgical patients become delirious. And so if we focus for a minute on the ICU patients, um, 50 to 80% of them, irrespective of age, will go into del delirium. And so to be more concrete about that, ICU patients, they sleep about five hours a day. As you can imagine, that's not good. And so, moreover, the medium duration of sleep before being awoke is three minutes. It's nuts, right? And so, uh, all, moreover, when you arrive to the ICU, you might already be sleep deprived. <laughs> and so, uh, it's not surprising that, uh, you know, the ability to have organ recovery and survival is crucially dependent upon your ability to sleep inside the ICU. And so, um, one of the things that we got interested in is we, we collaborate with an ICU physician here at UC San Diego who's very much interested uh, in exactly this problem. And so um, if we fast forward a little bit, you know, delirium is still undiagnosed in more than half of the patients. Increased morbidity, morbidity uh, and mortality rates. Cognitive and functional recovery. Recovery is worsened and an increased length of stay in the hospital. And the chief financial officer of a hospital will pay close attention to that third bullet point. So um, th these are the types of challenges that we have to deal with uh, in the hospital. And so um, what we got interested in doing is taking some of our flexible electronic systems and trying to design them specifically so that they can be monitoring different aspects of sleep. And so, as some of us may know, there are different stages of sleep. There's light sleep, there's deep, sl deep sleep, et cetera. It's very important for you to get into deep stages of sleep where lots of that recovery occurs. And so the question becomes, can we actually be developing almost a smart sleep patch that can begin to uh, acquire brain waves as well as perhaps some of the aspects of the eye movement for rapid, for REM, different aspects of REM sleep? Can we, just from these signals, determine what stage of sleep that you're in, and could we possibly close the loop in the hospital? And so uh, where this begins is uh, testing out our technology. And so the green waveform represents the flexible electronics uh, that we acquired. And uh, the brownish uh, uh, waveform represents conventional EEG shower cap electrodes. So we did a side-by-side -side comparison inside of a sleep lab with the shower cap as well as the flexible electrodes just on your forehead. And we're looking, uh, so one of these clinicians that does the sleep staging, based on the full shower cap of EEG, we look at different stages of sleep and we ask ourselves, can our forehead sensor pick up the same type of information as the shower cap device? 
And so, for example, uh, when you're in stage N2, there are these K complexes that arise, and you can see that we're picking them up with our, with our green patches as compared to the conventional. And also, when you're in REM, rapid eye movement, can we be picking up different aspects of the eye movements? So from a qualitative perspective, this suggests that we're doing this, that we're able to pick this information up. And then what we did is we asked ourselves, could we actually uh, be able to develop an automated sleep staging algorithm? So there's two levels of innovation we're trying to pursue. A, we're trying to replace the full shower cap of EEG and the full polysomnography of all those instruments with just a patch on the forehead. And then B, can we replace the, the subjectivity of the human needing to stage the sleep? And can we instead use applied math algorithms to automate it, to do an automated sleep staging approach? And here's a picture that suggests that the answer is yes. So this is unpublished work um, that our graduate student Day uh, uh, has done. And so the picture that you see up top comes from data collected with the shower cap and everything all over the body. Moreover, the way that the sleep staging was done is with a human being carefully looking through what was taking place. And so basically every 30 seconds, they take a snapshot of all of the data, and they say, I think this is this stage of sleep, that stage of sleep. In comparison, the bottom picture represents data at, uh, coming from only our forehead and moreover, an automated algorithm. And you can see the two line up pretty well. And so this is ongoing work that we're tweaking. And if we, we actually can be able to develop an automated patch-based sleep staging algorithm, it creates lots of opportunities, in particular within the context uh, of the ICU. Because as I alluded to, insom you know, insomnia and sleep problems persist sometimes up to six months uh, post-discharge and up to half of the patients in the ICU. And the quality of life uh, is impaired. And so what I'm alluding to is could we actually develop an approach where we could be measuring someone in the ICU, analyzing what's taking place, and actually in real time, imagine if we had almost like a stop sign, a red light or a, or a green light, suggesting to a nurse, you know what, don't interrupt, him. don't interrupt him right now. He's in deep sleep. Come back later. And if we're staging this in real time, we can actually create a smart hospital environment where we can allow nurses to only come in to take the measurements required when uh, people are awake or uh, perturb their sleep uh, in a manner that's the, the least uh, disruptive to their recovery. This is the blue sky picture that we're after. And as you can imagine, this could also be useful to understand how well, how much good sleep you're getting after you get discharged for the ho from the hospital for the few uh, weeks to months uh, post-discharge in the ICU. This is the blue sky picture that we're after. And we're very happy that, uh, as some of you may know, that we have a new Jacobs Medical Center opening here at UCSD. And there's going to be uh, ICU beds and whatnot here. And as you guys know, Erwin Jacobs is the godfather of wireless. And he's very uh, bullish about novel technologies being used in a hospital with his name on it. And so we're very excited about pursuing this inside the hospital. So this is one example of how we can try to promote healthy aging with this technology and analytics so that your experience inside the hospital and your recovery is improved and you can get back to le leading normal, healthy lives. Uh, so what I wanted to move forward with now is another application that is related in ways that you might not imagine at first glance. A lot of us here are probably familiar with uh, things such as uh, Parkinson's disease and whatnot may have friends who have Parkinson's disease. So I was very fortunate to be a part of a, um, an MIT report that just got released in June called Convergence, 
And convergence is all about the science of bringing different disciplines together and thinking very differently. And one of the things that we reported uh, in our talk is that uh, there's recent evidence that suggests that um, that uh, the cause of Parkinson's disease, which we know is a brain disorder, may actually may not be in the brain. It actually may be in our gut. And so uh, one, of the, uh, one of the examples of this to sort of suggest this is that there was a study done in thousands of patients uh, in uh, uh, Norway, and there were patients that uh, had very severe um, uh, stress, which led to stomach ulcers and whatnot, and so some of these people had their vagus nerve and whatnot cut. And what they found over a span of multiple decades is that in those patients where their vagus nerve was cut, uh, the onset of Parkinson's disease was drastically reduced. And there are other scientists that have hypotheses that Parkinson's disease actually begins in the gut. And as we may know, your gut and your brain are connected in many ways, one of which is through your vagus nerve. And so it might propagate through the vagus nerve to the brain. Moreover, lots of uh, uh, problems that we see with the brain have a close association with the gut. Another great example is autism spectrum disorders. You know, some of you may, may have grandchildren. They tell your, your grandchild who got diagnosed with autism to put them on a gluten-free diet. Uh, but if we focus back for a moment on GI, I became very interested as we developed our technologies and what are other... Um, potential uses outside of measuring the brain, measuring the heart, which many people are pursuing, what are other things that we can measure non-invasively that can be very useful? And it turns out that the, the, the GI field is literally in the Stone Ages. And what I mean by that, to make that clear, is if we focus for a minute on taking a look at nutrition and aging, uh, some of you may be uh, aware of this, but uh, Sometimes satiety and other aspects of how you, how you feel about how much food intake begins to change as you age. We know so little about this. It's crucially important, even though we may be thinking that we're not as hungry, that we still take in a sufficient amount of nutrients so our body can function more normally. And um, it's also uh, well known that it's uh, more common that as you age, basically your, uh, your, your, your peristalsis or how your body sort of moves food through your digestive system, starts to slow down. And this has important implications on medications that you take. Because as you may know, the pharma companies, when they design a medication, they want it to hit your bloodstream at just the right time. So they design the pill so that it's eroded by your, you know, your gastric enzymes and other digestive enzymes, so that when it hits the small intestine, it gets into the bloodstream. But what if the pumping mechanism in your GI system is a little slow? then the nutrients are going to get released at the not the right stage of your GI system. So there's many, many, many applications from nutrition, malnutrition, not eating enough as you age, to your nutrition not being right. And none of this is well studied. And so if we take a look at what types of tools we use for GI, if we think you have a problem, they're very, very, very arduous. Uh, some of you might have be victims of some of these. Uh, <laughs> One of them is an endoscopy, where they basically shove something through your throat. Uh, an upper endoscopy, a lower endoscopy, is they shove it elsewhere to get into your GI system. Um, there are other approaches that they use to measure your GI system where they make you swallow something radioactive, and then they image it to see how long it goes through your GI system. But you're swallowing something radioactive. And lastly, these quote-unquote smart pills, but these are big pills. And so I don't know if you guys have seen some of these, but try swallowing some of these. They sometimes can get stuck 
inside your digestive tract, and they have to go in and get them out. Uh, not so pleasant. So at a high level, we got very interested in understanding, are there non-invasive ways, unobtrusive ways, that we can quantitatively assess the GI system? And what uh, sort of motivated us about this is uh, if we focus for a minute on, on, on cardiology, cardiology is a great example, in my opinion, of how engineers and physicians have worked closely together. They slap a 12-lead EKG on you, they can do an EKG on you, and they can infer almost precisely what's wrong with a certain aspect of your heart. They can use that to turn around and intervene. Can the same thing be said about GI? No. In fact, there is an electrical GI monitoring tool, but it's seldom used in the GI field. And so it basically involves slapping three electrodes over your abdomen. Those three electrodes get plugged into an amplifier, and one waveform gets generated, as you see in the top right. They take that waveform and they re-represent it in terms of time and frequency to see what frequencies are active. So they just take this one snapshot and they use this to make clinical decisions. For example, they say your GI system is normal if most of the time the most active frequency is at about three cycles per minute. And that's the natural rhythm of your stomach of how it's supposed to be pumping. And they've created some arbitrary rule that if 70% of the time the dominant frequency is three cycles per minute, then you're normal. Otherwise, you're abnormal, somewhat arbitrary. Nothing, uh, nothing at the level of, of cardiology. And these tools are very ineffective. And let me explain to you what I mean. So we collaborate with the gastroenterologist here at UCSD, uh, a pair actually, uh, one named David Kunkel, another named Hayat Musa. And you see there's six pictures. There's a column on the left, column on the right. The column on the left are three patients that were deemed normal, and we took a look at these time frequency signatures, and you see this red band right in a certain area. And the bottom line is if you use this clinical criterion, they are deemed normal. Then we took three patients who, using um, other approaches, in particular the radioactive swallowing, were deemed to have gastroparesis, right, or, or their, their, their gastric function is abnormal. Yet, when you do this non-invasive procedure, it says they're also normal. So even though the, the three on the right column are abnormal, the conventional not, uh, non-invasive procedure would claim all six of these are normal. And that's why that procedure is not used. That's why when you go to the GI doctor, they don't slap those electrodes on your stomach, because it cannot disambiguate the left from the right, for example. So we took some insights for some folks uh, in New Zealand who actually did some invasive stomach surgeries to really understand how the electrical cells of the stomach work, very similar to how we understand how the electrical cells of the heart work. And after uh, you do this, there's a high-level picture that got generated, which is typically there's this electrical wave of the stomach that goes from sort of the top right down to the bottom left. And there are other sorts of problems that arise. So if you take a look at people that had different GI problems, you can have the velocity, basically the speed that that wave propagates can be too fast or too slow. There can be an issue of there are two waves that got originated, one at the top and one in the bottom, and they collide upon one another. Or the wave could actually begin at the bottom rather than the top. And if any of you guys have ever talked to a cardiologist, do these words seem familiar? They talk about similar types of things in cardiology, you know, initiation, velocity, et cetera. So these things, if you go invasive in a surgery, you can see in the stomach, yeah, we have no way to measure this non-invasively. So uh, my graduate student, Armin, uh, recently uh, developed an approach to, to get one step closer to, for us to be able to do that. 
And so it basically involves us putting uh, an, an array of electrodes over the abdomen area and developing a, a variety of different uh, sorts of algorithms. And the high-level idea is that when we put this array of electrodes, we can start to see this wave uh, that's being generated by your stomach, representing the myoelectric activity. We can then do statistics on this wave to look at what fraction of the time is it propagating in one direction and what is the speed that the wave is traveling at. And so these are new things that we can do by taking a bit of an electrical engineering, almost radar perspective at looking into the stomach. And we can take a look at those same six patients. And the bottom line is the three patients on the left, you see this dominant direction going in one place. The speed, indeed, is at about three millimeters per second in all three of these patients. And if you take a look at the patients on the right that had gastroparesis, our measure sees that, look, you know, sometimes the wave is propagating one way, sometimes the propagating is another way. So this spatial histogram shows that the, the, the stomach is behaving very erratically. And also look at this histogram of the speed that the wave is traveling. It's not as tight. It's much more broad. In some situations, the wave is actually propagating in the opposite direction. Or in other cases, you start to see this colliding where it's going in one direction and 180 degrees in the opposite direction. So you see that these pictures that we're generating are beginning to look similar to what they saw invasively. And indeed, we've done a side-by-side um, -side comparison. So one of our collaborators um, basically placed one of these invasive to, uh, uh, tools inside the body to basically measure the pressure in different parts of the stomach. And what we were able to find is that uh, at low-pressure parts of the stomach, you see a wave primarily in one direction, yet at high pressure, you start to see waves going in opposite direction. So we're beginning to be able to disambiguate uh, what happens typically, which you would measure with an invasive procedure, now with something that's fully non-invasive. And in some sense, what we're trying to do is we're trying to take what your cardiologist can do for you and give you very actionable insights about your heart and how we can improve it, and to do the same thing for your GI system. So we published uh, one paper on this recently. We have many more in the works. We have lots of studies. If any of you are interested in volunteering, we're doing studies. And some people here, here in the audience have already uh, served as uh, 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 study participants with us. So um, and, and the punchline is, how could this help you? Let's imagine in the future, uh, in fact, if you talk to some of your friends that have Parkinson's disease, it's very common that Parkinson's disease, uh, you, people start to have... Um, uh, all sorts of GI problems, such as constipation and other GI abnormalities, before they, you start to see the motor symptoms. Let's imagine if this could potentially be used as a pre-diagnostic tool for Parkinson's disease. Let's imagine if we can give you more actionable insight into what's wrong with your GI system, rather than a lot of this quality, because it really goes from you giving qualitative information towards us doing something that's quantitative but very invasive. Can we have something in between? That's what we're working towards. We also think this could be very useful for your medication and understanding that if you indeed have delayed gastric emptying, we might want to rethink how we dose your medication so that the medication is actually getting into your bloodstream at the right time. So we think there are many ways that this could potentially help the aging community. We're just now getting our feet wet, but we want to see the GI field mature to where cardiology is so we can be very non-invasive and help you. So the, the last aspect of my talk that I wanted to uh, speak to is something that uh, a lot of us are familiar with, and that's the whole issue of, uh, of posture. 
And one of the things that we know that begins to happen is that um, as we start to age, we start to see a bit of stoop posture. We start to see different aspects of shaky hands. Some of these things are just a natural progression of, of aging. If any of you saw the, you know, I'm not a politician, but if you saw the Democratic National Convention, you saw Bill Clinton, and you started to see some of the, the postural changes that arose with him. And uh, he's not diagnosed with Parkinson's, but this is just a natural consequence uh, of his aging. So uh, what we got to understand is what, what sorts of things can we do to quantitatively assess this in ways that are non-invasive, and what can we do to help you so you can maintain good posture for as long as possible? So within the context of quantitative assessment, the idea that came to our mind is what if we can use a very simple non-invasive imaging technology here that actually doesn't even require us slapping a sensor on you. So what if we can use the same type of gaming technologies that are used uh, by some of your grandkids, such as the Microsoft Connect, and repurpose it to understand different aspects of your posture. So as you're walking across, we can generate these pictures, these stick figure pictures of what's going on with your body. And so we partnered with a movement disorder specialist here at UC San Diego to actually take a look at some of the Parkinson's patients. And so here's a video actually of a Parkinson's patient. And as you can see, as he's walking along, we are getting some of his... Um, we're generating just this video, and from this video, we're generating the stick figure type of information. We subsequently took some of the stick figure information, and we compared this to the typical workflow that Parkinson's movement disorder specialists use, and they have these, uh, these different types of uh, scales about your step length and different aspects of how you're doing to, to assess your posture. Could we make this fully quantitative? And indeed, we were able to show that for our... Uh, for a significant number of the reporting variables that they use that right now are subjective, describing the severity of your, your, your Parkinson's disease, we can now start to make this objective. And what could potentially be nice about this is that you could be assessed not only in the clinic here at UCSD, but in outpatient settings, and that same information could be provided uh, to a physician. So that's one aspect uh, from the perspective of uh, being able to more quantitatively assess Parkinson's and to help it. But another aspect, as I alluded to, is just the issue of posture more generally to promote healthy aging. And so what we're very interested in is developing a workflow where a physician or a loved one or a clinical coordinator can start to get objective information about uh, different aspects of your posture and use this to help you. And that gentleman in the, in the, uh, in the, in the picture is sitting right here front and center, Richard, Richard Shulman. So this is a concrete example of patient-led participatory research or the way that we're thinking about doing our research is really coming from the healthy aging community. And we're also very fortunate that um, the graduate student who's involved, involved in this, Justin Tantiengluck, who works very closely with Richard, uh, recently won a, a Stein Endowed Fellowship for graduate studies uh, to promote healthy aging. So what we're trying to do right here at a high level is to build a system that has a, a, a number of key properties. And this picture right here really came from the inside of Richard. In order, in order, we want to build a system that could help the health, healthy aging to promote good posture uh, and healthier aging, but in a manner that is going to be useful and actually adopted by the aging community. And what Richard brought to our attention is the importance of this thing being convenient. Maybe we don't want you to be instrumented with these wearable patches. What if we can just slap something in your environment that you walk by all the time and it can measure different aspects of your posture? It needs to be very accurate because we don't want this thing giving you useful information but as I alluded to before, we're very interested in building systems that are secure, that are not giving away detailed patient health information that in the eyes of the aging community could possibly be used against you. 
especially if you live in an assisted living facility or elsewhere. So uh, here's a video of our beloved Richard, and you can see some of the data that we're uh, starting to collect. And so here's a video of Richard, and we're just um, gathering some high-level stick figure data about him. And the $64,000 question is, how do we take this data? We have these stick figures. We can start to do analysis on it. How can we do something that's meaningful for him to promote healthy aging and healthy posture? And uh, the first thing that sort of came to our mind is, can we work uh, with a physical therapist or someone who is an expert at assessing posture, and can they take a look at some of these uh, postures and identify some of which that are good, some of which that are bad, and then from that we can actually build an automated algorithm which, based on, upon real-time data, can label the data as quote-unquote good or as bad. So that's the first step that we took, and what we end up with is uh, you know, uh, an algorithm that can do that. And so here's Justin, who won the... Uh, the Stein Fellowship, and here's a real-time video of Justin, and as you can see, um, we're, we're generating the stick figure information about him, but notice that the stick figure information is going red part of the time, green part of the time. The Microsoft Connect doesn't give you that. That's our algorithm running in real time, coding this posture is either good or is bad. So we're beginning to walk a little bit, being able to say, okay, well, at least now we can label these postures as good or bad, but still from your perspective, so what? <laughs> so um, what we thought about doing for starters is building a workflow where maybe there could be something that's in a smartphone app or elsewhere, and periodically Richard can review his postures. And so we were able to build an app that can go onto a smartphone, and we can take a look at certain windows of time or what fraction of time do we feel like you're engaged in posture that suggests that it needs to be reviewed by an expert. Are you, uh, you know, after you went to physical therapy, are you improving? Are you worsening? Et cetera. Beginning to get a, just a high level sort of carrot in the stick algorithm that's giving him reminders. This is looking good. This is not. We were not totally satisfied with that status quo. So what we began to do is uh, we collaborate uh, with a, a physical therapist here at UC San Diego named Carter McElroy. And what we were interested in is more, more interesting information about aspects of the posture. So what we're doing now is that we're working with the physical therapist. We show them some of this, some of this information. They either say, this is looking good, or they pinpoint more specifically what we, think, uh, what we think is wrong. Something about the back is not right. The shoulders are not good. The hips are not angled correctly. So it's beginning to get to be more precise and more actionable so that we can give useful feedback. And so these are some of the things that we're doing right now with an observational model. And uh, what we learned from talking to our physical therapist collaborator is the different types of uh, postural issues that we start to see that are common to walking. And your shoulders are too far forward. Your head is too far forward. Your hip flexors are angled a bit. Your knees are bent too much, uh, et cetera, et cetera. You're not engaging your calves correctly in walking. And so some of these things are, you know, manifest from the natural uh, aging process. But what can we do to measure this and to give you insight to get you to try to stop it? And so hopefully you see the workflow that we're trying to go to. We're trying to go from just red and green to be much more precise in determining what's wrong and giving you actionable feedback. And so um, uh, if we move forward with this example, we, the idea is we would like to evolve from this picture before about simply telling you posture review needed to something that's much more precise, which we call observation and intervention analytics. So can we actually do analytics to give you a very concrete recommendation? You know, imagine that we put this device in your home 
And every day this tells you, you know what, I think that tomorrow you need to do more of these warrior exercises. And it's well known, uh, some of you may be familiar with this, uh, 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 I only do these after I run, but apparently I should be doing these more often to promote healthy aging. Uh, it turns out that uh, this very specific exercise is well known to address some of the issues uh, of the hips and some of the common, uh, common postural challenges that you see with healthy aging. So what we're evolving towards is building our analytics so that a recommendation can be done to you uh, that's very concrete and very specific to tell you you should be doing more of this or less of this. And so the high-level idea now is that we're pivoting towards telling you something much more concrete. And as you can see in this picture now, it's specifically telling you do this warrior exercise. You know, another example of this will be uh, something that you can indeed do at home. Uh, look upward, uh, straighten your back, uh, straighten your back leg. And so what I mean by this, which is one step even further, is um, not only do we want to, to tell you periodically do this exercise, but now when you're at home as you're doing your exercise, can we give you real-time feedback? As you're doing this warrior exercise, look up more, straighten your back leg, etc. So making this very precise, giving you real-time feedback as you're doing your exercise. So this is the high-level uh, uh, trajectory that we're trying to go towards. And again, it sort of feeds into the story as you keep you know, seeing me do over and over again, this idea of a feedback loop where we like to measure you in a manner that's totally uh, unobtrusive and convenient, analyze this data and provide very concrete information, stand more upright, et cetera, to go from being reactive until waiting until you, you fell, you had a hip injury, to proactive, to prevent you from doing this in the first place, this information can be provided to a spouse or a loved one, as well as a therapist or a care coordinator. And so um, as I conclude my talk, uh, what I'd like to you know, sort of communicate, and hopefully this picture came across, is that if you, if you take a look at these sensors that were used in the title, they're very enticing, you know, me medical tattoos. It caught your attention. But if you really take a look at how we think, these sensors, I call them their paintbrushes, right? The analytics is also a paintbrush. And working with the physicians is a paintbrush. But it's really about how we bring these things together and about what concrete problems we're trying to solve. It's about the painting that we're trying to draw. In an ideal world, we can actually paint a Picasso painting using these paintbrushes. And so this is the insight I like to give to the community. This is the insight I give to my graduate students all the time. Although this sensor is cute, it's just a paintbrush. Are you painting an interesting painting, or are you painting something useless? That's the $64,000 question. So that's the theme. That's the story of what we do. And so with that, I would like to conclude my talk. Uh, thank you. <laughs> to repeat her question, her question was, within the context of the sleep study that I mentioned, if now we can actually stage and, and know that in this window of time, for example, you're in REM sleep, can we provide some type of stimulus, be it sound or otherwise, to uh, promote you staying in that stage of sleep, be it in the ICU or at home? These are the types of things that uh, many people are interested in. So some of you may have heard of uh, this notion of quantified self, uh, this movement that's been generated, and the idea is that if you instrument yourself with all sorts of devices, you can understand your physiology and understand yourself better. 
Now, that's cute, but there's uh, sort of two problems with that. First of which, there's only a small group of people who really want to do that. People are very, very curious about themselves or very OCD. Other people want to take this data and turn it into information. So it's very succinct and very concrete and very suggestive what to do. Or could it actually close the loop for me based upon my physiology? So there's a new movement being generated called the essential self. And uh, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, which very care, very much cares about innovation and improving health, they are supporting this. And it's about exactly the question that you mentioned. Can we actually be measuring something about the body and trying to close the loop in a manner that's minimally, uh, minimally involves you, know, you consciously doing things? And so I think this fits within that example. And so stay tuned to the notion of the essential self. We welcome you. Uh, you know, uh, something else I'd like to say is that you know, Richard is a great example. Um, we, we, we very much like to keep in touch with people in the community. You guys give us amazing insights. You actually influence our design of things. Richard is an electrical, retired electrical engineer, so he really you know, gets his hands dirty in working with us. Many of you have different perspectives, all of which that are useful. So we encourage you to, to try to be a part of what we're doing so we can best help you. To repeat his question, it's basically, if we take a look at diabetes for a moment, the way you measure your blood sugar is very cumbersome. Take these pricks, uh, et cetera. Could this technology be used to be implanted inside the body to measure blood sugar in a way that does not require as many of those pricks to take place? So, and to... Right, and to also send uh, signals to an insulin pump. So again, we go closed loop. So a lot of people are thinking about this right now. Uh, so uh, I'll say multiple things. So first of all, some people uh, are attempting to measure glucose non-invasively uh, just based upon what's in your sweat. Indeed, there are people here at UC San Diego that are doing that. Uh, I've talked to um, some experts in the field they are a bit uh, bearish on that approach for the following reason. Indeed, there is uh, glucose in the sweat, but what we really care about is your blood glucose because that's what's actionable. And it turns out what the glucose that's in your sweat does not really correlate or associate well with what's in your blood in that same time. So even if you do measure what's in the sweat, it might not be nearly as useful as what if you could measure what's in the blood. So, so if we, now if we focus on a moment, as you alluded to, of trying to go invasive, there are many people working on that. And again, uh, my, one of my colleagues, uh, this is a different group, one of my colleagues in bioengineering here at UC San Diego has, an invent, has been working for decades on a, uh, an invasive uh, glucose monitoring system that can be implanted for months to even a year with minimal amount of blood pricks for calibration and so he has a company some, that my colleague is David Goff, a professor in bioengineering, and he's co-founded a company called Glycense that's based here in San Diego. And they have a, uh, a stage three clinical trial. And from my understanding, they are close to getting uh, approval in Europe for their device, which would have much more longevity, minimizing the number of pricks that are required. Could this potentially be associated with flexible sensors? In principle, yes. Uh, some of the challenges, however, though, is that, the, uh, as you may know, whenever you implant something inside the body, the immune response 
uh, just goes haywire. And so your body says, what is this foreign object inside of me? And it tries to attack it, and that adversely affects your ability to measure what you want. So I have talked to people about attempting to do this, but we, uh, we always kick the can down the road a little bit because we know that that's a very long process because trying to address some of the issues of the immune response. However, in principle, I think something like this can be done, and I think something like this will be done. Um, moving on to your question about closed loop with insulin, that's already, that's in, so the private sector is all over this. So there are glucose monitoring companies, and there are insulin pump companies, and they're working with each other so that that readout can feed the insulin pump in closed loop. So if you take a look at the big companies like, you know, Abbott and Medtronic and um, the French people that make insulin, say that again? Tandem and uh, Sanofi, all of these folks are, are working on these things. And also Dexcom, some of us may know. It's a company based right here in San Diego. So there's many people working on this. It's, it's very, very uh, moving extremely fast in the private sector. Well, I think with that, maybe we can uh, continue the conversation, but without the, the lights and the microphone. And, uh, thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.